Yep. All right. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknessum. It is a beautiful, cloudy day. We're going to get a polar vortex Wednesday night. It's supposed to drop to two degrees and snow and ice, and I could not be more excited to get my fireplace going. There you go. There you go. That's the attitude. I'm gearing up for that too, although the weather is really clear here. And I I was just uh, checking out the the, uh, weather in Oklahoma uh, and Seattle. Uh, My mother turns 95 tomorrow. She was born in a blizzard at midnight and there's, it's snowing hard there right now. So I think that's kind of exciting. that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty cool. Well, you said it was her birthday, yes? Yes, tomorrow. Happy, well, happy birthday to Ellen. You are an inspiration, and I hope that it's a great one. Yeah, I made her a music video card, which is up on my YouTube channel if people want to check it out. Uh, 95 is a big uh, is a big achievement, and my own, my biological father is. died at 60, so... Uh, mm-hmm. I think genetically I'm kind of uh, th- splitting the difference there. But uh, yeah, 95 <laughs> is a major, ch- and she's still very lucid, as you know. So yes, um, indeed. it's not just being uh, still conscious. It's because uh, a lot of people, I think, do make that level. Uh, well, not a lot even necessarily. Um, no, no, a lot of people don't. They're not, they're definitely not conscious uh, even if that's all that they are by 95. No, my grandparents, I have one who is 78, and the rest all died between 74 and 76. So my genetic lottery, uh, or my genetic pool rather, from which I'm pulling, is uh, is not promising, which led to the, the depressing talk we had last time. Yeah. About the 30, 30, 30, 30 summers left. Uh, but, you know, I also think that my may they all rest in peace not speaking ill of the dead but they they didn't have good diets or health practices or but so we'll see what we can do we'll see what we can do but shout out to ellen yeah an amazing yeah, achievement. Thanks. Uh, and when you say lucid i mean we're talking playing the piano and going about her day de- you know it's not it's it's a, a fully fully functional human being capabilities at ninety five. That's yeah. She's that's she's else. trying to you know do a light opera based on a Mark Twain story, and uh, she's she's written uh-huh. a few before. So no, she's still yeah. very you know very much here, a lot more here than than most people are really. Than most. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So. But well, uh, good good day good times over here the christmas season is ramping up my living room has become completely stacked with presents because we've got presents from grandparents and aunts and uncles and and rios herself that amazon button on the phone is really tricky but we've got a (laughs) we've got a t-ball set that's wrapped up here we've got a basketball hoop for toddlers We've got trains. He's very much into fire trucks and dump trucks, so we have every variation you can think of on that. Excavators, all sorts of stuff like that. So it's looking to be a uh, a messy Chris. Lots of wrapping paper. I'm gonna have to go around with my trash bag and be mindful of it because it's gonna be insane. Well, you know, people always say that uh, a youngster 
gives adults a new you know prism to look through uh, the holidays you know and I think it is it is really true and I think that's so exciting and it's great you've got uh, the grandparents on board with that that sounds really festive and and fun so well done oh and something you'll like too we, we're doing 12 days of Christmas but every day he gets to unwrap a new book so that'll be our tradition every year is uh, 12 books when he gets into his teenage years that might get pricey but children's books are four or five dollars so it's not it's not breaking the bank but uh, yeah every day he gets to unwrap a new spot book or I'm not sure what else. Rios is mostly in charge of this uh, I can't pretend like I had a huge hand in it but it's cool nonetheless. Excellent, excellent. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. listen, you know, as a as a really caring dad, don't ever fall into the trap that my father did once, which was it was so hilarious. Uh, he, this is when we lived in the first uh, sort of proper house because we started off in a small house in Berkeley, but this one was a two story house and it had a very steep roof, and Dad got out after we'd gone to bed. I think I would have been about maybe four, maybe. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) so my sister was nine. Uh, But he got out on the roof with bells and was Mm. jingling and, you know, doing Santa things. But I think he'd had a, a few eggnogs too many, maybe. But it was cold. I mean, even in Berkeley, it gets cold and the roof was slippery. And he found himself clutching the chimney in total, total panic and had to be rescued by the fire department. And, of course, at that stage, my sole objective for growing up was to become a fireman and to have firemen in the house, in our house, in uniform on Christmas Eve. I thought, well, that was just that was that was Christmas right there. We have a, that's an amazing story. We have a security system installed in the house that includes uh, sending for the fire department if there's ever a detection of smoke. Um, and I was able to see just how effective it was because I had uh, taken a very hot shower in the morning before anybody had woken up. This was 5.30 in the morning. I had the steam going, it was great. It was clearing out my sinuses. The air here can get very dry. And, uh, you know, you wake up, you feel all stuffed up. So you take a nice hot shower, it loosens up all the mucus. And I stepped out and I opened the door and that steam hit the smoke detector and the whole house erupted in alarms. And I'm dripping wet and naked. I'm not close to my phone, which would have allowed me to call off the fire department. You have 30 seconds to do this before they're alerted. So I quickly, like, of course, Gus and Rios are now awake at 5.30, so they're not happy with me. And, uh, and then we get a ding-dong on the door, <laughs> and a full-on full fire truck and three guys all suited up were there ready to go. So we know it works, at least. We know the system works. Well, that's important. That's important. There you go. Okay. But today, all right, so getting started, do you have an aphorism and a band for us, this, this, this holiday episode of Lost Explorers? Well, the band is a little odd because it's, uh, it's based on an AI project that I'm, I'm doing some beta testing and uh, 
networking with a system that some uh, MIT folks have uh, thrown my way. I, I'm not the only person doing this. There are about 50 other folks doing it. But they've, it's called Angus Artichoke. That's the name of the system. I didn't give it that name. But the name of my band is Angus Artichoke and Fat Drum Other. Because that, that the system gave that name to a track of music that I was making. I said, what should I call it? Because I, I, I interact with it all the time and just, just see what it says. And it, it responded, Fat Drum Other. Uh, but there... <clears throat> Their album is called Everybody Does It, but does it does that make it right? And I love that. <laughs> I love that. And here we've we've done some AI stuff, but here is something fresh out of this strange black box. I'm going to read it, and I'm going to actually make uh, a song or a piece of music about it. You ready? I'm ready. The ancient octopus of empires is enduring. Dropping small ceramic elephants from a rooftop is satisfying. When the beans stick to the spoon, beat it against the pan. When the beans stick to the pan, scrape it with the spoon. Troubled genius... Edgar Allan Poe, tell me something I don't know. Give me something I don't have. Something that I want. Something that I need. Something that I'm dying for. Isn't that wild? Isn't that wild? That's great. I give, yeah, no, that's a 10 out of 10 for me. That, that ticks all the buttons. And that's, you said that's AI generated? Yeah. I mean, it, it's yeah, it's great. it's coming out of interactions I've had with it, but I but for instance, I've I've programmed in a whole bunch of, uh, you know, famous writers, some of my stuff, and, and just odd phrases that I picked up. It sounds a little like you, and it might be because you were reading it in your style. Yeah. But I did I did detect in the words themselves a bit. I feel like this the when the beans are stuck to the spoon, wipe it on the pan, vice versa. That feels like a Chris line. Yeah. It feels like something that would show up there. You can see it kind of, of reacting to it. And this is why I think you and I um, should should be involved in, in this sort of new frontier of writing because it is, it, it's emerging. It's, uh, it's certainly a threat to hack freelance writing around the world and maybe for the, yeah. maybe for the, for the good. Uh, but I mm -hmm. think in artistic hands it could do some interesting things. And uh, I, I, we, we kind of mentioned that in the, the Psychic Defense Manual, and I think it's good that we're out in front of this and kind of in, enjoying it, you know? It's important to, yeah. to celebrate some of these new things, not to always be cringy about stuff because, oh my, yeah. I have some other cringe things we could get into about... Uh -huh. uh, words and I, the mangling of language over the last year yeah I, the only thing i'll say about ai it's very succinct is that it seems to be upsetting all the right people good i think that's a good way to put it that's a good way to put mm -hmm. it 
Well, early in the new year, we'll do sort of maybe a little bit more a roundup of where that's at and why it may be needed because human uh, use of language is just becoming stupider and stupider by the day. So there we go. But here is my aphorism. And I think this is a good, uh, it's not a, a religious message exactly, but I think it's in keeping with the world renewal sense of, of winter solstice and uh, the Christmas season. Don't despair. At any given moment, omniscience is just a momentous revelation away. You know, I thought it could happen. I dig that one. Stay, yeah. stay yeah. open-minded, and maybe your mind will stay open. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, imagine that. Just allowing for things to come in. Yeah, no, that's great. That's really good. Just writing that down. All right. And I've got so, an imaginative challenge. That's what I was going to say. Okay. Speaking of imaginations and keeping minds open, uh, hit me. Hit me with my challenge. Okay. We're going to do something that's a really good Lost Explorers game idea of taking a great piece of relevant mythology, as in the Christmas story, and mashing it up with a very, very successful uh, recent franchise idea. The Three Wise Men. I love the three wise men. I was one of them in a, in a school play long ago. They only appear in the book of Matthew, but they're mysterious figures. They're Persian kings, uh, you know, worshippers of another religion. And they're also magi, you know, uh, as in magicians, <clears throat> yeah. alchemists. And they're following the star, right? Well, you are one of the three wise men. Yep. But there's a catch. You're also there to protect the babe in the manger because one of the wise men is <laughs> like a Terminator figure, okay? <laughs> and is there to eliminate baby Jesus and therefore change all of human history. And your mission is to protect... the child of Mary, not Joseph, <laughs> not Joseph. We're going to get to jo that Joseph in a minute. Uh, but so there you are. You're one of three wise men on a very <laughs> special mission. And you don't, yeah. you, you don't know who amongst the other two magi is the saboteur assassin but you have to bodyguard the babe. Okay? <laughs> Got it. That's great. I love that. Okay, cool. That sounds like a lot of fun. That sounds like fun. I'm into it. Okie dokie. We're rocked. We're, wait, we're locked and loaded and ready to rock. That's what I meant to say. Sorry, I was holding a child upside down at the time. Perfect. Every once in a while, no matter how much mental judo I do on this show, occasionally the wires get crossed. But, uh... Okay, cool. Holiday season, holiday cheer. This is my favorite time of the year. And I'm interested to hear what you would like to talk about this week. Well, I, 
I certainly want to keep to that, that mood of cheer, and I think that's where we're definitely going to end up with. But we said last time we were going to try to link our episode on the, the disease of disembodiment, this struggle mm-hmm. that we're having contem- you know, in contemporary times, uh, and to see how that indexes against the Christmas story. Because uh, I think it, it does, and I think that this season maybe pr- can provide a little bit of, if not healing, a little bit of reinforcement for uh, some of our, uh, our deeper hopes about breaking free of the cycle of confusion and disembodiment that is uh, upon us in, in the modern age. So how does that sound as an idea? Because I'll, I'll kind of recap where we were with disembodiment give a few more examples of what we're talking about and then we'll head into the uh the christ child story yeah that sounds good to me that sounds i'm interested to hear how disembodiment uh will play into this i've been thinking since last week a lot about uh, disembodiment in the internet and spaces and places um there's a really interesting blog that i read by someone named Chia. It's a pretty significant, probably about 15,000 word blog that was talking about the way that people congregate online and what constitutes a place. And what's the matter, Bubba's? What can I do for you? Is it nap time? Okay, yeah, we can take a nap, no big deal. Um, but it, it had an interesting sort of take on how, uh, I think it was much more techno-optimist yeah. Than, uh, than you and I might be. But it was still interesting in that from this writer's perspective, the, the spaces provided online allowed them to sort of, in a way, realize who they, who they were in a way. I, I find that this is more common with gay and trans people than with straight people. A lot of gay and trans people seem to, to get a lot out of internet spaces. Um, maybe more so than than people who are a bit more uh, grounded in their identity. But I don't want to go too far off on a tangent about that, but um, well, I'll leave it right there. That's not tangential at all, and I, I certainly will, will pick up on that. Uh, I think it's good, though, to get a little bit of deeper background that predates the rise of the Internet and the, the actual uh, possibility of virtual reality and this strange... Uh, kind of day-to-day disembodiment that everybody is dealing with because of, of technology and the digital revolution. Um, so, anyway, just to recap kind of uh, where we were last time, we talked about disembodiment as the loss of the secret, private, alchemical, psychological level of being in ourselves as well as any cosmic connection with larger forces of order and life. Okay, so we lose the the very private and the very gigantic cosmological levels in favor of an obsession with the social. Uh, Humans, you know, as the measure of all things, and all things human defined uh, kind of tragically in terms of Walmart... Uh, yeah, there you go, Gus. Sing it out. Walmart, Instagram, you know, the Real Housewives, uh, beer and football, uh, fentanyl, smartphones, and uh, liberal virtue. 
just throw that one in. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. On the cosmological side, I, it does include the the sense of, of astronomy and, and the planet Earth being part of a much larger physical universe, but it's also, uh, you know, a spiritual, inherently a spiritual idea. And I, I think, uh, or I'd add parenthetically, that even for radical atheists, the cosmic level has flickers of that residual religious instinct. You know, infinity mm-hmm. and eternity are still conceptually on their radar. So something, something bigger. We, we lose the mystery of self and the mystery and grandeur of, of the cosmos in favor of this relentlessly social level that we're all on now. And I don't think that we were, always were in the past. I think that's really a, a, a very distinct uh, difference. Um, I've, I phrase sort of the social level in American-centric terms very, uh, I think that's, that's reasonable. I think there's a rationale for that, given America's place uh, in global uh, culture today, right now anyway. Right, but right. the human social range, and this is really the important element to start with, is only a very, very narrow segment of this psycho-cosmological spectrum. And if you look at the electromagnetic spectrum, it's like visible light. It's just a tiny, tiny portion of the whole. And that's what we've sacrificed kind of all potential avenues of being for. All right, so then I started thinking, okay, well, people are going to ask, well, what do we really mean by the social level? Let's put some precision on that. And I suggest that a crucial way, not the only way, but a crucial way to consider it is as a pattern of practices intended to turn nastiness into the decorous and perhaps the genteel. You know, the thousand natural shocks the flesh is heir to, smells, all of the things we have to apologize for and deal with, needs, you know, physical needs. Those are the, the key problems that the social level must navigate. The, right. this, this social sphere calls us out of the meat and bone, the blood and water body, into, into what? Into protocol and custom, abstract right. systems. And these systems weirdly take on a phantom physicality, I'd argue, because we've at least tacitly agreed to a degree of disembodiment as social beings. That's the price of social order and the benefits of a group. It's the distorting magic of shame and euphemism. You know, that's Mm -hmm, the price mm -hmm, paid. mm -hmm. So to round up the intro here, humankind, humanity, to be human, steps outside the circle of all of the other animals in fear. Fear not directed first at the darknesses within ourselves and not at darknesses and monsters in the world at large or beyond or to come. Nope. The fear is essentially of shadows, the social realm of others. The first cost of doing business is doing business with other people, you know? 
and that yeah. requires that degree of disembodiment. And I think that actually could potentially, if we wanted to pursue that in the new year, connect back to our earlier uh, uh, segments on empathy, because I think there's some weird crossover. But that's kind of my intro. And then I have um, some examples of, of to, to kind of enrich our sense of how disembodiment expresses itself today, just so we're completely clear. But what is that? How did that intro sit with you as, as kind of backgrounding what we talked about last week and I don't know, giving it a little bit more dimensionality? I, I like it. I like that the social is, if we had been having this discussion 50 years ago, it would have been a civilizing force would be the language used. Oh, well yeah. said. That's exactly. Yeah. That's what someone right. like Alfred North Whitehead on the scientific end, but a whole right. bunch of, of writers and artists would have been, would have been saying. Abs Even D.H. Right. Lawrence right. rebelling against society would have said that. That's a lovely right, way to right. put that, a civilizing force. And I like the, the gerund form of the verb there, the active in progress right. sense. Yeah, know? civilizing, a constant in process thing. But it is a movement away from blood and farts and, you know, uh, nasty smells and uncouth things, things that you aren't supposed to say to other people. I think that the, the – just to add on to the social, I think that it's important to add on the element of, of play as well. I think games and play are a natural sort of reason that people socialize and become social groups. I like the idea of, you know, instead of homo sapiens, it's homo ludens. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, being, beings that are meant, meant to play. So on the one hand, I can appreciate the fact that it has a, a real reason for existing to sort of uh, necessarily disembody people as a way to keep us from, you know, being, you know, crawling around in our own filth and, you know, pissing everybody off who we come into contact with. And also, you know, exploring higher realms of consciousness and art and things of that nature. Uh, but also, I do also think that the, the carrot of the carrot and the stick metaphor is, is a sense of uh, you know, holidays and games and, you know, uh, uh, community and, and playing, play, playfulness element to that too. But I think that's great. I think that's, I think that's a really nice place to start. Well, the play element is a very important thing to, to make sure people, you know, get with there because that is right. And I think that's part of the celebratory, positive, uh, deeply optimistic it's built into uh, the whole human story from the very beginning. And it isn't all just uh, a kind of negative, weird, puritanical dis, you know, distaste for uh, the, the meat and bone truth of life. You know, it's not that at all. There's also play. There's cooperation. There's the joy of festivals and, and you know, ritual practice. You know, lots of cool things there. Um, mm -hmm. But to kind of look at where disembodiment is today, here are some things that cross my mind. And, uh, you know, this is not meant to, uh, well, certainly not attack any, any, you know, community today, but it is some inconsistency in the thinking and the language that is, is getting a lot of attention in the media. We hear today people talk about being born in the wrong body 
or mm -hmm. not being a certain size. They're in a certain size body, you know, mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. is, well, I, I can't help but think that's a religious point of view, but it's at minimum a very magical kind of thinking in this in the current mm -hmm, psychological mm -hmm. sense and it's it's weird you know metaphysics i mean i, I you and i are, are are metaphysicians we're we're all in favor of that but you've got to kind of be acknowledging what you're doing in that world and to have yeah. be striving for some kind of consistency it can't just be whenever you want to tune into that you know you can so there's something right. very disembodied about that thinking and the language that flows around it, which is everywhere in mainstream media and social media today. Second point I was thinking about, in every culture there are some consistencies. Music is one, but there is almost always some kind of meditative or highly disciplined athletic practice that is pursued in, in a sacred sense to get mm -hmm. people out of the body from time to time, particularly shaman figures. We devoted a lot of time to that in our, in our early in, in the series. Uh, and it's worth revisiting that. But a lot of sacred practices have now degraded to mundane habit. And I would include um, the use of, of drugs, you know, psychoactive substances. You know, we've moved from... Yeah, even alcohol. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Tobacco, yeah. you know. It, it's it's become you know really quite a degenerative uh, form of habit or addiction and it's lost that sort of sacred edge uh, then we've also talked about you know in, in fairly recent times the two bombs dropped on Japan the sudden you know coincidental uh, appearance of rock and roll We've got the hydrogen mm -hmm. bombs, you know, bikini atoll, and then we get bikinis. We get more mm -hmm. female flesh on offer across all media than any point in history at almost, you know, on the same timeline as the destruction of, of humanity really becomes possible by our own hands. You know, mm, mm -hmm, it, it, mm -hmm. that's that's not a coincidence. There is a kind of an end of the world hysteria that many people have, have noticed and talk about. We have mirrors everywhere today of, of many different kinds, both literal physical mirrors and conceptual metaphorical ones. And there is so much flesh shown. It, I think an alien race coming down would look at us and say, these creatures are absolutely desperate to prove that they're alive, that they have bodies. Yep. There's a desperate need to prove that, you know, I mean, I asked my students what would, what, you know, one of the things that would really terrify them the most. And uh, one said, if I looked in a mirror and there was nothing there, and I <laughs> thought, well, there, that's kind of the Gen Z uh, <laughs> anthem in a way um, mm -hmm. and then of course we really do have as you mentioned the emergence of a virtual reality where it's moved from a kind of uh, fantasy science fiction premise to now uh, you know something along the lines of a commercially available uh, truth and 
we've certainly got in any case the, the you know the constant presence and dependence on the internet uh, social media many people are heavily involved in gaming communities the whole metaverse is is coming true so all of those are ways to think about the disembodiment crisis and how conflicted we are about it do we want to be embodied and to enjoy the pleasures of the flesh and to enjoy the prestige and social uh you know kudos if we look the right way or are we afraid of dying are we afraid of all the messiness of of the body uh where you know that's the conflict right there so mm -hmm. what can you do you agree that those are ways to see that conflict do you have any others to add? It's interesting to me that the central fear here seems to be that you're not... I, I, I just think that if people thought about this for a few seconds, they would be answering their own question because the further we become disembodied in terms of, you know, oh, I'm a person who's in a body. You see this all the time with, you know, black bodies. I've always thought that was very macabre and strange that the news would refer to people as black bodies instead of black people. It seems, uh, I don't, you think of people in a morgue, right? You mm. think of shells, vessels, things that like, things that are not alive, essentially. And you see that a lot with, uh, you know, with, with avatars online and people sort of forgetting who they are and feeling empty. I love that Gen Z quote about looking in the mirror and seeing that nobody's really there and the part that they're all missing is that you know on, at a certain level you you are your body right <laughs> so the the further the, the body's not a tool necessarily for projecting some inner life that you want to get across think of a instagram model right who's who think who might think of her or his body as a as a kind of a mechanism by which they can make money but also express a truth or something that they wish was true about themselves it's a tool but the the fundamental missing part there is the synthesis between uh the inner and the outer that you're just as much your body as you are the person who's quote unquote trapped inside a body right <laughs> i don't like that idea of you know i'm this that was trapped in the wrong body it's i i think often of the the movie The Watchman, when Rorschach goes to jail, and he says, uh, "I'm not trapped in here with you. You're all trapped in here with me." Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're you're not trapped in your body. Your body's stuck with you, right? And that gives you a certain responsibility for for that whole thing. It's interesting that the the major, and I, I'm I'm asking this because I don't know the answer to it. But the major contradiction does seem to be that the more disembodied people become, the more uh, sort of pornographic they become, right? And I'm, I'm not an anti-porn guy. I, I don't think that, you know, porn shouldn't exist or anything like that. But there does seem to be a correlation to that where there's a sense of being less, less prudish the further you get away from your body. Maybe I'm answering my own question here, but... And then sort of more conservative and prudish, the more embodied, the more real your body even is to you, right? Well, I think that's very well said. And I think that that raises a lot of, you know, immediate, well, what should be immediately apparent issues. 
uh, because there are cultures in the world that have very different views about it. and we look at them and, and think oh my god we couldn't you know that that's just barbaric and that that that's not you know diverse and inclusive uh, and yet they may have in in a sense a lot more emotional maturity and and you know better psychological health you know because they're not you know that conflicted but you know what you could say about the conflict and I think you've helped sort of really uh, delineate it and, and, and crystallize it is that if you were to take that constellation of points that I mentioned really uh, seriously, what you would say is that, that there really are two human imperatives that should have the majority of our social attention. One is really is coming to terms with that uh, mind-body split. You know, do we really think we're in our bodies? Well, then why does our Western, why does Western medicine take such a different view that we are our bodies? Why don't we get consistent on the psychological level and then the mm -hmm. cosmological level, you know, and, and Henri Bergson said that the, that the, the cosmological level is the inverse of, of the psychological level, you know, as it is above, as it is below, you know, that old Gnostic idea. And I think that's the way, I mean, but we don't. We zip in and out of those, uh, and this has to do with the tool for this week, we zip in and out of those, those systems when we choose to, thinking that we're choosing them. And then there's this sudden desperation and real anxiety attack that comes over, oh, that we may not be in control. And then, you know, mm -hmm. and it's this mm -hmm. endless cycle. We think we're making choices and decisions because we've been told that we, we have that, you know, right. And, you know, certainly that power to do that. And yet, well, that may not be true, or those may not be the decisions that we actually do, you know, positively make. And then when we get in situations where we suddenly feel out of control or disempowered, we, you know, instead of, you know, calming down and thinking, well, all right, well, what do I do now? There's this sudden fear, you know, oh my God, you mean we're not mm. in control, you know? And mm -hmm. if nothing mm -hmm. else, I mean, surely at least the five major religions that have emerged and that are, are still active in this time in human uh, storytelling is that it's about bridging that gap. You know, it's about dealing yeah. with that. Uh, and the Christian story, whether people, you know, just cringe at it or not, it, nonetheless, that's what it's all about thematically. That's what it's all about. I agree with so. What just came to me while you were talking, I have a lot of friends who are in tech, and who are more tech adjacent, uh, and I've also seen many people who are very into tech and very tech adjacent. They're concerned with where technology is going. Again, like I was mentioning this blog earlier, how do we recreate space in the digital world? Um, I'm having a hard time remembering or being able to conjure up a single one of those people who doesn't seem to be constantly physically ill. Ah, okay. Okay. So 
so where I'm going with that is is this idea of you know you're talking about like this this sort of balance that has to be struck between the two we're talking about how this is so off kilter and off balance but this is another seeming paradox right that people who are largely disembodied people who spend a lot of time online uh, people who you know sort of live their lives vicariously through their phones or internet connection or what have you they, they often do seem to be a bit crippled in a way in one way or the other you know they've got aches and pains or they've got a cold or or something like that and it's almost as though like it's almost as though the denial of the body makes the body have to constantly remind you that it exists you know <laughs> whereas people who you know exercise and stay healthy in that way are they, they're taking matters into their own hands so to speak it's interesting by the way i just made a connection hands and digital yeah that's never thought about it that oh, way. oh really oh yeah, okay digits. yeah yeah exactly it, yes that's something that totally totally passed me by but that was just a i don't know that was just the, the first thing that came to me and i feel like there's there's a key there there's something to the fact that does the pain come first and it forces people to try to disassociate from their body and become disembodied because they because they don't like the experience or is it vice versa and the further you become disembodied the more aching and longing in an alchemical spiritual kind of way gets translated into actual pain within the body well that's the confu that, that confusion is beautifully summed up in the, in the word psychosomatic I mean, break that yeah, down. It means right. mind body. You know, it's like, well, what you right. know, but it, psychosoma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it's 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 connotative meaning is uh, mm -hmm. purely mental. You know that you you don't really have you're not really structurally ill. You don't have cancer of the liver. You've got a psychosomatic problem, a disease of the mind, mm -hmm. wherever the mind might be. We get straight into the Cartesian duality, mind body problem, and you have to just really I think be able to reconcile that paradox on on a, on the level of, of a kind of religious faith of just simply letting go of that and just living that and and dealing then with what you've got I mean people who say like you know the non-binary idea well there are a lot of really important binaries I'm looking at both my hands right now and I'm really glad I have two hands I wouldn't want one, and I don't know how I'd work with three, you know. I, I'd start needing four, you know. But, you know, as, as a relatively new parent still, you, you'll, you know, people would have, you know, you would have heard the phrase, you know, in asking about the, the newborn, uh, ten fingers and ten toes, you know. Yeah. That's, oh, that's, yeah. but that's typical, that's normal. Yeah, and it's kind of good. You know, right? <laughs> it, there's something to be said, you know, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I think that we get we get free of, uh, and this is where we shift back and forth. We love these metaphors when they're working for us, and we can embody them fully, and they become structurally and materially real for us. But when we don't like it, we try to step back out. And I think that's where things start to get really, really wonky. And that's where we're at now. Yeah, I think so too. And I think that, 
the non-binary thing is really interesting to me because like you said there are important binaries i just want to call attention again to the fact that this all this stuff this shit all comes out of the internet none of it existed before the internet and we're always asking ourselves like where was all this before of course trans people existed before the internet that's not what i'm saying at all but all these this very specific terminology i mean computers are built on binary code so it's interesting that we would then develop a term for a certain type of human being that's directly related to code in a computer and in a way that makes it seem like it's differentiating itself from a from a computer right like i am not just one or two things i'm not a system of programs that's running at all times i am in a way free and i think that might in that might be where the appeal of that term might come from and for other people i mean it just sort of i've always thought that non-binary sort of just describes uh the human experience so for me in in general i've never i've never thought that i was a girl uh i've never thought that i was gay uh, life has been really simple in that respect but within the confines of a uh what what they would call a cis hetero existence uh you feel you feel different every day sometimes you feel like a completely different person every day and and you so are really sure. <laughs> and and you are so i'm not i'm not even sure if it's like really a term that that even really means anything but i wonder if it's not in response to the disembodiment again that the internet and our current cultural landscape has sort of forced upon people right you just we had all these uh, sort of movies like in uh, books like american psycho and fight club that all sort of touched on the the emptiness of consumerism and once you add on to that a disembodiment aspect through the internet you you don't have any anchor to anything anymore so yeah you feel non-binary you feel like you're just kind of nothing well, and that's the, you know, the empty mirror problem. But, I, you know, the interesting thing is, and this is an example of, of how things work today, is that, you know, non-binary is an enormous abstract conceptual frame that applies to many, many things. Night and day comes to mind. And everyone knows that that is a, a process, that that is a spectrum, that we have, you know, we have afternoon and noon and dusk, and, you know, we know. We know there are shades. That's the whole point of night and day, you know. And that's kind of the fundamental physical reality that, you know, everybody is involved <laughs> with. You know, that's what called being alive is, is, is about, you know. It's about night and day. It's a lot about a lot of binaries. Dead and alive is a good binary. Uh, mm -hmm. And that has a shade that, that has also a spectrum to it, you know? That's called that really is called life. Uh, that is exactly what the what a life story looks like. It's uh, it lies between birth and death, you know, and and mm -hmm. the rebirth question is another matter. But so we use you know a framework in one sense when we want to or think we want to, but really it's it's often been imposed by the media and the social order that social level we started talking about. That's imposed on us. And that may not be the way that, that you know, we really think about it. But look at the idea of, of your, your thought about digits and the, and the fingers on our hands. 
you know, five digits, whereas the digital revolution hinges on just two, zero and one. You know, and zero isn't even, you know, so really one, you know, yeah. and yeah. that's, a, I mean, whereas we've got five senses, there are a whole bunch of other models, muddle, you know, other metaphorical muddles and, and frameworks that could have been uh, applied. But it's, it's that narrowing down to, so things that, that could have potentially very, and, and really need to have very broad and truly diverse and inclusive meanings end up being used so narrowly you know and mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. to if you say if someone says well they're non-binary well yeah then what you know so, I mean, you know for starters do i need to know that uh mm-hmm. i mean it it that's that's already working on a weird level because you're saying that something that is visually uh apparent and socially uh, agreed upon needs to somehow be explained. Well, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. getting talk about a metaverse. That's getting as in you know a, a, on top of. That's getting mm-hmm. meta on top of meta. You know. Yeah. Meta artificial. It's, it's it's very fascinating to me. I think that so much of this is. I I wonder about how much of it is environmental and socially constructed and how much of it is you know the freedom of 2022 you know sort of allowing people to come into whatever identity it is but it's it's strange to come into a negation of an identity you see what i mean like it's it's strange to have a sort of coming out as a non thing yeah, I didn't mean to say thing in like a rude way, but you know what I mean. No, I do. It's a, um, and it, it it is a kind of. I don't know. It's it's just, it's in, the negation aspect of it is interesting to me. That that I wonder if people don't feel so, like their existence is a negative, not in the fact that they that they don't like it or, but that it's just it's in opposition. You know how you talked about the the binary code it's on or it's off and they feel like they're living the life on off switch or or i guess neither oh it's also confusing i'm going around I'm, <laughs> i want to talk about Chris, christmas now because i'm talking in circles okay um, well, well no this is good this is good because i think that no matter what your perspective is on the christmas story uh you could be completely opposed to any sort of religious significance at all. It nonetheless has some features as a story that I think can be looked at. And here's one thing that's always fascinating. Ever since I was old enough and, and knowledgeable enough to, to understand what was going on. But uh, you look at Christianity. For, well, we will look at the religious side of this. Uh, I mean, here's a binary, Catholics or Protestants. In mm-hmm. some way, yeah. that kind of applies. I mean, there are some people who would quibble with that, of course. I understand that. But that's a pretty strong binary there. Now, if you ask, in my experience at least, if you ask Catholics the, the key element of uh, the Christmas story, well, it's the virgin birth. You know, it's the Virgin Mary, 
that is a that is the first thing that comes and I think rightly so a virgin birth is, is truly a miracle and that's a really strong opening gambit from a storytelling point of view it's it's like the big bang theory in physics we're, we're not we're just not going to really explain this really you're just going to have to to go with this because it's you know we're going into the realm of, of magic and and wonder right. and uh, if right. you don't have that in you to start with well then you know go shop at, you know at Walgreens yeah. and and order a pizza you know mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but if you if you ask Protestants well, they, they talk about the joy of Christmas. They, they, they talk about sort of the Christmas spirit. But in my experience for them, really, the, the whole Christ story hinges on the grown-up Christ, the betrayed Christ. You know, this is my body broken for you. That redemption mm-hmm. sacrifice, tying into the Old Testament, ancient Middle East idea of sacrifice and transforming that at least you know, intentionally, uh, maybe not effectively, but transforming that into a new worldview uh, that tries to reaffirm, say, the self and the cosmos via the social level, where the social level isn't in opposition. It could be a community of, of, of faith, you know, where two or three are gathered in my name. Uh, but when I think of... <laughs> of the, the, the Christ child story. My first thought is we, we don't see any, de- or I can't think of a depiction of Christ as a teenager, you know? That would be a very postmodern sort of view yeah, of that. Yeah. It's not a historical there was, one. There's, uh, there's one apocryphal story that I can think of, but nothing in the, in the canon yeah, of the Bible. Yeah, and the apocryphal, you know, apocryphal, well, the apocrypha and the pseudepigrapha, is, uh, I love to hear my father say that, I, I didn't even know what he was talking about until many years later, but now I think it's cool. Uh, but but I, what freaks me out, and I think this will relate to you as a husband and father, is the character of Joseph. You know, he's, he's one of 16 Josephs that are mentioned in the Bible in total. And he's not to be confused with the coat of many colors, Joseph. But he is in this weird position of kind of the adoptive father, the stepdad almost. What do you think about... He's not the stepdad, he's the dad who stepped up. Oh, okay. Have you ever heard that? No, I haven't. I love it now, though. (laughs) I just think it's. I think it's so funny. Uh, But sorry, what was your question? Well, yeah, but that's I think the way to to think of it. Joseph is the dad who stepped up, so he's kind of the unsung hero of the whole Bethlehem project, you know. Uh, Yeah, yeah. But and clearly the son the son turned out pretty good. Had some. I mean, being the son of God, you got good genetics, but. I mean, Joseph had to have been a good father. Yeah, I have to imagine that he didn't, you know, beat up Jesus or anything like that. So uh, overall, I give him, I give him an A plus rating. That's a that's a tall order to take on. I don't know if I could do it on a personal level, taking care of someone else's kid. People who are able to do that, they have my respect and my admiration because uh, taking care of my flesh and blood is uh, that's a, that's enough for me. Not sure I could t- 
the, the burden of somebody else's. Well, no, I think I, I certainly understand that entirely. I, mean, I think that's one of the, the great, you know, male themes across the human story is just where, and it, it informs so many, so many social conventions, mores, and cultural practices around the world of how that's been sort of dealt with. I mean, it, it's one of the crucial decisions that uh, any group of people make, you know, as, yeah, as, as right. defining their group, you know, how that gets, it's, 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 it's a part of a constellation of, 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 of factors and, and forces, of course, but it's, it's, it's in that mix. But, but think about this from this uh, disembodied point of view of dealing with uh, shame, embarrassment, confusion, and, and fear of the physicality of, of the body and also uh, craving it and, and really celebrating it. You've got not a virgin birth, an immaculate conception. I mean, Zeus came down in you know, weird creature forms like a, you know, a swan you know, or a bull. You know, he he took, the, took embodied form, not with Mary, you know, that's there's no sexual intercourse there it's beyond that sort of thinking and to to bring that that kind of uh phraseology in, into the picture is considered by some people to be very sacrilegious and just you know contraindicated but then from that big bang kind of non-explained magical whatever uh starting point you do get the absolute embodiment of this enormously vulnerable being you know a baby you know in a manger with donkeys and goats and I always loved that part of the story and I I'm sorry when people desecrate nativity scenes around neighborhoods because I think they're really sort of cool. I don't mind at weird outsider art versions if they're really good, but uh, I, I do think there's a kind of a beauty to that 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 movement between the worlds, you know, of mm -hmm. of a magic, unexplained, sacred, you know, whatever metaphysical at least uh, premise starting point. In, you know, becoming very, very embodied of the world, you know, and it's weird to read the book of Mark on, on this, you know, one of the four Gospels, and it's, it's, its character is completely singular, uh, and it really is very, very at odds with the other could say all of them are. Matthew and Luke have the most similarity, and then John's off on another sort of little thing. But Mark is the superhero version, you know? It's like Stan Lee wrote it. it it's, it's a yeah. complete wonder child sort of thing. And so, like, you could really see a picture of, like, a, you know, the little uh, baby Jesus, you know, picking up an ox cart with one, you know, little arm. You know, and hefting mm -hmm. it, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I think I had a comic yeah. book like that, a religious comic book as a kid, now that I, something like that, you know? Right, um, right, right, right. But to me, that's the, the, the story there. And that's the call to action for all of us, whatever our, our religious orientation is, you know, even if we, you know, insist that we don't have any, is, is to bridge that gap between 
the unexplainable, inexplicable, mysterious origin point, which is the beginning of our own lives, our own sense of consciousness and self. We really don't have a clear picture of that. And we know, I think implicitly, that we never can, that it's, it's just, it's not recoverable. I mean, it would only be recoverable by some sort of amazing experience, trauma, drugs, near death, uh, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. God, aliens, you know, something. Uh, we're, we just can't count on that experience. So we, we accept that premise. We accept that premise. And we move forward into really what should be an increasing sense of embodiment, as in responsibility yeah. and joy. Right. Responsibility and joy. Not just comfort and joy, but responsibility and joy of being in ourselves, being part of a family, being part of a group, being part of a community, being part of a time in history, and, and casting some shadows, you know? Uh, and, yeah. and being both yeah. accountable, but also <clears throat> open to enjoy it, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Accountability and enjoyment go hand in hand. You can't really have one truly without the other. And uh, I love this idea of ultimately, broad strokes, the story of Jesus' birth and death. The, the whole overarc of the, of the New Testament is one of the ultimate disembodied being becoming embodied and experiencing the full spectrum of human life, right? From being born in a manger among animals, right? Like, to signify, you know, just how low juxtaposed with all the gifts that were brought to him and then dying extraordinarily painfully on a cross, right? Maybe one of the worst ways to die that human beings have yet invented. So it really is, in many ways, a religion of, as you said, going from the disembodied into the embodied with with the explicit understanding that parts of it are going to be joyous and parts of it are really going to suck. Yeah. And and maybe maybe that's maybe that's the beef a lot of people like sub, subconsciously. Maybe that's the beef a lot of people who would prefer disembodiment have with Christianity. There's a lot of stuff, right? Well, Churches aren't exactly the, the best places to be for everybody. Uh, but I'm talking about on a subconscious. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, under, I understand the distinction you're making. Because, of course, you know, actual dimensional uh, interaction with people, that part of the religious experience may have been terribly negative for people. I understand that, too. Church or, or schools, I, I mean, I know so many, the people I've known who've gone to Catholic schools either had great experience with the Jesuit schools, or they hated the nuns who were often, you know, psychotics, and, or they were, you know, molested by the priest. You know, there, there are many reasons right. to have personal right. problems. But I think what I, what I heard you saying was that before and, and apart from any of those social interactions with people, as the primary medium, they're, they're, they have a subconscious problem with the storyline. Yeah, an ontological. Yeah, I like that. I think that's a very it. interesting insight. I think that I think that would. I mean, I know a lot of people would would just deny that, uh, but some people that would get through, and I think they would deny it all the more because it, it would. You know what I mean? Because it because it hits. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so many of the points that I make in my life 
are are uh, just rejected out of hand, and I'm sick enough in the head to make me that it makes me think I'm more right. <laughs> I'm like, oh, did I touch a did I touch a nerve? Yeah. To disagree is to just be like, oh, I don't think that's true. Okay, fair enough. But when they get mad, I start to really think <laughs> that I'm on to something. Yeah. You know? oh, well, why why does that why does that bother you? But no, I love I've um there was a there's a theologian named Peter Rollins who wrote a book called Insurrection and in that book he talks a lot about the crucifixion and how central that is to uh Christianity. In his conception Christianity is a, a sort of nihilistic very kind of black metal religion where God incarnates on earth to to experience death to to kill himself. God kills himself in front of everybody. And and in Rollins' estimation, it's in that uh, that lack of God, that absence of God, God dying on the cross, that we actually find <clears throat> where God really is. It's a really cool book. It's an interesting way of, of approaching it, and one that I find aesthetically uh, intriguing. But I like this conception of it better, that it's it's more of a religion of you know going from nothing to something, which is you know, allegorically, that works for every person who's alive right now, right? I mean, we've all experienced varying levels of pain and joy, uh, but we weren't always here. And then all of a sudden we were here. And what a strange thing that is. Yeah. And what a perfect story to to represent that. Well, I think that that's a way to, to, to think of it, you know, and I, I think it frees it of, of some of its religious trappings in, in the sense of baggage for some people maybe uh, and it's and yet it remains true to that religious level of significance for for those who are of that persuasion but you can't I mean it really is a story of, of evolution of embodiment increasing embodiment to the point where the end point the crucifixion which has been so beautifully rendered in art of many kinds. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, just high drama and high pathos of, of well, you can't really do better. Um, and it, it, it's a kind of global moment, too, because I think you could really place that, that the essence of that in, within many cultures around the world. Um, but the end point has significance because of the body. You take away, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. then it's, mm -hmm. no. It, it's, and that's the whole argument for, for the, the importance of the Trinity, you know. And that leads into the whole Easter resurrection thing, which uh, for, for, say, my family, my father was really into, uh, he did a beautiful Easter sermon. So that was the, the, the essence of the Christ story for him was, was really uh, the escape you know the magician's es mm. escape. Uh, ah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Well, he knew a lot of vaudevillians, you know. So the the the, the false bottom trunk idea, that aspect of of the resurrection, is really appealed to him. Uh, and I think it appeals to all of us. We get away, you know, somehow, you know. Right. And that's right. of course. And that's so interesting. Oh no! Please finish your well, thought. Well, that's of course the whole. You know, I mean, that's where the afterlife idea kind of runs out of steam you know, as a story notion. You know, it really and no one really does a great job with it. I don't think um, it's kind of just an endless <coughs> yeah. meadow of you know all you know everything fine. Is it really? 
I mean, that doesn't sound yeah. very interesting. That sounds like a really bad Captain and Tennille song, you know? Yeah, yeah. and I, I think that if I were to ever, you know, seriously take back up the Christian faith that I was raised in, which is Southern Baptist, um, there you go. I would adopt <laughs> it. I would adop- adopt it all except for the the resurrection, right? Not on some you know uh, heretical like we reject the resurrection, but just personally, the stories and metaphors that I live by, I like the story better with him dying on the cross. It's neater to me. So you, you don't know, like the roll away the stone part. You- you see, yeah. I'm a sucker just for the language of it. You know, the, the rhythm. For lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Wow. You know? Mm-hmm. And yet... It is cool. Yeah. I mean, yeah. really, I mean, I don't know. I was just thinking of the Lord's Prayer the other day. And that is just beautiful if you didn't even know anything about English. It's it's just mm-hmm. the rhythm of it is a, is a musical structure that is just kind of a... It's a small miracle, you know, it's just a beautiful thing, you know, it really mm-hmm. is. But here's, here's a way maybe to, to put this in perspective, and it, it's kind of a tool unto itself. It isn't my tool for this week, but think how often the word flesh appears in the Bible. The word made flesh, that's, you know, the key. Mm-hmm. Everyone who loves language, every writer who doesn't know anything about the Bible knows about that phrase, the word made flesh. Flesh is grass, which is a really weird metaphor, but beautiful. It comes from Isaiah. Uh, Flesh is mentioned all the time. Flesh is mentioned in, in literature all the time up to what might be one of the boundary points of the modern era. And I think that's very interesting. Then, I mean, flesh often has flesh pots, you know, often has a sinful sort of naughty, dirty, nasty, you know, that side of the body. And yet it's nonetheless accepted within the literature up to a certain point. And literature, you know, that, that's really all that we know of the people of the past up, up to the modern age. We don't have photographs or sound recordings of them. But here's a, the here's a thing. In your daily life, okay, just try to replace the word skin with flesh. Mm-hmm. See what that does. It's very peculiar. It really is. It's, it, and it means the same thing, really. It means right. more. I think, I, think we, I think we think it, but then you ask, well, you know, uh, what, well, they might pinch themselves and say, well, it means something deeper than just, it means the meat. You know the tissue, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but the flesh—it's an interesting substitution for skin. Uh, Indeed, I- I'm getting ready for Terminator Magi <laughs> scenario. I'm really looking yeah. forward to yeah. this because, uh, uh-huh. you know, you always excel at this. So, are you are you ready? Yeah, yeah, it's got a good joke in here. So the three wise men are walking through the desert, and our protagonist is carrying the gold, and his two compatriots are respectively carrying the frankincense and myrrh. And he has been 
visited in a dream and told that one of his compatriots has ill intentions and means to harm the child. Something, something not of this world. And so now he's looking at his two traveling companions with a very keen eye. Well, the one that has the myrrh doesn't ever seem to eat. And they, and they write that off as that they are an ascetic and it's for religious reasons and they're fasting and it's okay, it's totally fine. Now the one with the frankincense always seems to know where to go even when the stars are obscured by clouds and by the way, there's a slight bluish tint to their skin. It's very strange. He can't quite decide which one of these might be the double agent. Uh. What he doesn't know, what he doesn't know, is that the person with the myrrh is in fact the Murderbot 5000. And that's myrrh with M Y R H. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and okay. So, so they approach the manger. They find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, and they congratulate Mary and Joseph. And our hero is on edge right now because this is the moment of truth. If it's going to go down, it's going to go down now. And he picks up the baby, looks at each one of them, and he says, uh, you know, I just I need a little bit of... Uh, of time here to uh, to pray and to, to bless this child. The one with the blue skin agrees to walk away, but the one with the myrrh whips out two huge laser cannons and says, no, the time has come, the Son of God must die, right? Because in the future, you know, it actually comes from a dystopian world that all hinges on this one moment. And so our protagonist is running through the stables, you know, chunks of wood are flying this way and that, Animals are being split apart. He's got the, the baby strapped to his chest. I don't know where Mary and Joseph are in this. They're safe, though. I don't want it to get too gory. And when he's hidden and he thinks that uh, all is lost, the blue-tinted frankincense bearer comes back. Where are they from? They're from, they're from Sirius. They're an alien from Sirius. That's how they always knew where the star was. And they come out with eight arms and they start doing battle with the Murbot and we get a huge uh, epic kaiju battle while our protagonist uh, protects the baby Jesus. Who wins? You have to tune in. You have to tune in next week. <laughs> oh wow. Oh wow. That was so wild. That was so wild. I, I, I really... Uh... I liked kind of the the uh, insertion of sort of a, a, a you know a John Carpenter sort of a who goes there the thing element of not knowing who the you know who the double agent is. I love the whole manger chaos scene of animals being split apart. I think that would be great to film. I mean, wouldn't you love to film that? You know. It's it's yeah. chaos in the manger, you know, and you could really yeah. you could really do a good sort of song that chaos in the manger. Um, but I like the idea of gore. Gore is a great word to put into our mix for the show about flesh and nastiness and mucus and the realities of physical embodiment. 
Uh, and it's a great, it's a Germanic sort of old English word, you know, and it's associated with muck and filth. And, mm-hmm. you know, you know, that, that, that saying it's, it's inside what, what counts with a person. Well, it's, you know, what's inside us from one point of view is gore, you know, it's not really all that good to look at, you know, and that's our problem. You know, we, what's inside is, is hard to look at actually. Uh, and, and that's true in, in that sort of more conceptual sort of way. So I think that, that's, that was really cool. Um, you know, what would be really neat would be to take a culture, like one of the several hundred languages of PNG or, or Chinese or something that is really uh, not recognizable to an English speaker's ear <clears throat> and inform... Um, the, the the test participant that they are going to be looking like they're going to hear words in Chinese say and they're going to have to guess what like kind of what they mean based on the way that they sound that would be really interesting because the word gore to me sounds like gore yeah and you said muck and filth and it would be interesting to you know sit them down and say here's a word and you just hear this sound this foreign sound you have no idea what the word means but you have to pick from an abc a multiple choice test of what you think it's closest to based on sound because that would mess some people up non-english speakers if they heard pulchritude yeah they probably wouldn't think that that was what it meant right no but it, it would be it would be fascinating to see how much of it is you know it's sonically this filth Right, filth sounds filthy. I think they'd be able to get that one. Well, see, that's a huge argument within linguistics. You know, it's the whole onomatopoeia sort of origin of language. Mm-hmm. And the question mm-hmm. then is: Do dogs really bark? Do they bark in Mandarin, in Russian? You know, do they woof? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe they do. You know, so but to do that kind of of really. Uh, intense survey while the, the the richness and variety in languages that exist still exist because we've lost an awful lot of them but it reminded me that many years i and i i i had a recording of this but it was damaged and i'm really sorry about it i don't know how, how clearly it would have come out but it, it came I, I i was present physically present doing the recording and it was um really the beginning of of the book of luke so one of the key four gospels the telling the christ story uh in the duke of york island language and uh, the the new testament taking this one guy just i don't know 10 10 years or so to translate uh in this very very peculiar very indistinct language you know, in the Oceania tradition, which is one of the most linguistically diverse in in the world that we've ever known of, you know, right. on a par with Africa or outstripping Africa to some extent. And it's, uh, it, nonetheless, I think it, it speaks to, there is some kind of resonant magic about words that does reach through musically you know, I say to my students, listen to the music before the semantics, if you can. You know, don't jump straight to the interpretation. You know, try to just get the perception first. Uh, and 
And I think that, so what you're saying has, has, you know, that is the word made flesh. You know, it's, it, it's, it's a kind of rhetorical claim that the, the embodiment of, of language speaks for itself, so to speak. And, and anyone can kind of understand that, which is not at all what we think of language. We think of it as being, way, you know, the Tower of Babel, sort of that, that side of the story of dividing everyone. Uh, and that mm-hmm. is probably, you know, that's the working truth. But nevertheless, within that, there are some, some moments of, of common resonance, common magic, where a word does maybe speak out for itself, you know? Yeah, that's fascinating. That's really interesting. Well, I'm glad that you liked that uh, imaginative challenge. That was a lot of fun. Uh, do you have a tool? I do, I do. And it, 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 it ties back into our theme and it's it's a it's a large challenge, but I think that that the tool itself is is part of a series of, of fairly simple practical things. But the challenge is to to work to understand the inconsistencies in our worldviews. We all have them, but mm-hmm. if we have some intelligence, maybe a bit of education of some kind, certainly some imagination and some curiosity about ourselves to begin with. I think we do want to uh, achieve some kind of coherence. It doesn't have to be, you know, rote consistency across everything, but we need no, to be conscious. Exactly. You know, there's a difference yeah. between and conscious of when we're not. Yeah, you know? exactly. I think that's a huge thing. Exactly, mm-hmm. and you know, it's kind of like, well, not not every you know corner of the parking lot is covered by a surveillance camera. You know, we're willing to let a, a few mm-hmm. things go. So it's just making it's it's making that the peace with those decisions we make, but also taking some responsibility for the the mystery that we try to conserve, <coughs> and. Uh, mm-hmm. For, for in the new year, I have a, a kind of a theory of the conservation of mystery and what that means. And I think that's a, a very uh, a fertile idea to explore. But here are two practical ways to start looking at uh, the inconsistencies in our worldview, whether we're conscious of, of the larger problems or not. I mean, sometimes we may not be, uh, but other people might be. Take two very common phrases that are related. It wasn't meant to be, and things could have gone a different way. Now, we hear those expressions all the time, and we don't really notice them. But think of what's implied in in worldview terms. Those are, are really strangely metaphysical. They have within them they're negotiating that, that, that very complex aspect of life that were the words chance, luck, destiny, fate, you know, predetermination or free will. Mm-hmm. They're right in the thick of that, these common, simple, everyday phrases. And they can, can come out of our mouths and we might not even notice them. But if you try to get a hold of those moments when, they, when you do come across them, just, un, just take a moment to unpack those a little. Do you really think that it wasn't meant to be? What does that mean? Do you apply that kind of thinking all the time? Is that the way you see the universe, the world, your life? You know, mm. just, 
Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it would be a little confrontational to ask other people these questions, but not to ask oneself, you know, uh, you're, you can, Mm -hmm. you're not going to annoy yourself that way. Uh, and if you find the questions are too big or you don't want to deal with, will you walk away and leave them for another time? But at least they've been articulated to some degree, you know? Right. Right. Which one, which one would you have picked? To, to look at it wasn't meant to be or things could have gone a different... To me, those are, are kind of... Are, are suggest a similar sort of worldview. And, oh, interesting. Yeah. They seem different to me. Okay. Okay, well, no, I think... I, no, I understand that. But tell me how you see they're different because I certainly understand that possible point of view, absolutely. Well, the first one implies a predeterminism. It wasn't meant to be whether it's God or the universe or, you know, we're all sort of on this track and that thing just wasn't meant to occur. Whereas it could have gone a different way, suggest choice, that you you could have made a choice that led to a different outcome. It wasn't meant to be, seems much more uh, predeterminist to me. Okay, no, I look, I totally agree. And that that's kind of my that was intentional in having the, the this this binary, this pairing of these two, because they are uh, both very different. And also, I'll, I'll make the case here why they're uh, what's similar about them, is that they imply some other level of existence, some other world, uh, you know, a plan or a model that's somehow equal in scale, and scope and kind of hard to distinguish between this reality and in the second one is you know that could have should have you know this this supposition of some other kind of 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 path you know and you think Mm -hmm. well why Mm -hmm. uh and when where do you where do you stop with that how many of these parallel you know universe possibilities are there uh you know it just becomes becomes kind of an administrative nightmare (laughs) whereas an alternative view is that every moment is unprecedented. You know? Mm, you know? Got you. I like that. Yeah. I didn't think about it that way. That's very interesting. I uh I probably would have gone with it wasn't it wasn't meant to be. <laughs> just just to throw it out there. But yeah, that's well, really, really interesting. Well the other thing is here, you know, you don't have to go for one all the time. I think I think the deeper sort of of, of reason for the tool and, and why it would be yeah. helpful is that we oftentimes are switching and mixing and matching and we're jumping backwards and forwards. And that may be okay if that is is our intention and we're consciously doing that with some self examination. But when we're just doing that because we don't know why we're doing it, uh, Mm -hmm. then we are likely to at some point experience the empty mirror problem or just so much Brownian noise in our heads that we wonder, you know, do we want to be in our bodies? Do we want to be here? You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I think that's that's where that goes. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow, that's it. What is your tool for today? Or, I'm sorry, tip. tip okay, tip. okay. This is, uh, you know, we try to keep the tips really sounding simple, but having their own depth of utility, not maybe on the level of a tool, but, you know, in proportion. Well, it occurred to me, and this is, you know, it didn't just occur. I spent some time 
taking in this kind of information over many, many years. But when a word keeps popping up, whether that's in the media, social media, or in your direct physical embodied life, when a word keeps popping up, I would suggest that that is a sure sign that it's being misused. Not just overused, mind you, okay? Not just abused through simple repetition, but outright misused, misapplied, okay? I think that's almost by definition what has to happen if the word keeps popping up all the time because it's just not appropriate in every instance think about the words i i you know assign you before every session you know if the idea is to use them appropriately you know and if you started doing that all the time it would it would have to be in a some situations would be less appropriate than others you know, to use that word in. So at the, at the very least, it would be annoying. Yes. <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, that's certainly the, 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 the psychological thing. Or it's, uh, the, it, it becomes necessary to, to ignore it, and it becomes taken for granted, and becomes atmospheric, right. you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That sounds familiar for many terms these days. Absolutely. But but keep an eye, if something grabs your attention at all, think of it, it's not just, you know, it's not just obviously repeating. You, you've noticed that. That's what called your attention to it. Go that one step further and then say, okay, how is this word being used? Is it being used with the same validity every time? What does that say about the, the, where it's coming from, the individual speaker, the media outlet, or whoever, however you're encountering it. What does that say? Are they, you know, maybe, are they doing that intentionally in some sort of, and just bending something because they, you know, they can't get rid of it. They can't, they, they're, that's their thing at the moment, so they're just going to beat it. That's the, the spoon they're going to beat against the pan at the moment, you know? Or do they just not know they're doing it? And therefore, well, you know, how does that make you feel about other communications you're getting from that source, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. the tip. Fantastic. Now, has there been a dream? There has, and I think... Has there, has there, has there been a Yuletide dream? I've been having... Before, I'm sorry to ask you a question that interrupt, but I had a dream last night that I murdered two people, but I killed them with knives. And I wonder <laughs> if that's not... Uh, I don't know what that's related to. I don't know if maybe that's why I'm in a good mood today. Maybe well, <laughs> I just had to get some of that aggression out in the yeah. dream world. The, the, you know, the catharsis theory, you know, that's, uh, wow, okay. Well, no, mine is, there was no bloodshed in mine, you know, and, and there, there wasn't an obvious Christmas theme to it. There, there is an embodiment uh, theme to it, though. Um, what stuck with me was in process I'm walking out of a building I've had some sort of visit with some people and they're not sort of clear but what is really clear is the whole neighborhood physical surrounds all non-people elements It's, it's totally integrated and all of a a period and a style so it's Mm -hmm. there's something you know really intentional 
it's like nothing I've seen before and yet totally familiar. You know that experience? I think that is one of the most beautiful, weird, uh, one-to-one ratio experiences there could ever be. Totally unknown, unprecedented, and yet familiar, you know? Mm -hmm. And then... I, within the dream, started to, as I'm sort of probably waking up, I start to piece together that actually what I'm dealing with is a perfect, seamless composite of places that I've been, and a beautiful overlay. Not blurring, not smudging, but it's like either I, I recognize some element of Pasadena, Boise, Idaho, Savannah, Georgia, St. Kilda Road in Melbourne, and the Parkville uh, district towns in South Africa, all of it just beautifully composited. But yet, I think in the dream, and it's, it's presenting itself, is I'm in Montana. And that is... Mm-hmm. So what's around me is very broad front yards sharing this a continuous crisscross design uh, cement wall between the yard and the street. Mm-hmm. There's a long row of maybe 20 to 30 shared wall, two-story building, okay, of maybe 20 to 30 individual residences. And the design style is this weird, composite of Jesuit, Victorian, and Italian styles, perfectly meshed. But the underlying, you know, architectural idea is really pretty basic, British working class houses from you know the mm-hmm. early twentieth century maybe or the nineteenth century. Is the is the wall is this is this where the sidewalk would be? Yes, there? The, the sidewalk okay. is immediately on the other side. And okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And then out in the street on the median <clears throat> strips are planted these fairly mature chestnut and oak trees, but in this open fenced front yard that runs down this whole length of the building. All of the vegetation is Southern Hemisphere plants. These weird little distorted fig trees, acacia, and cool. some really, you know, very exotic, but, but definitely uh, Southern Hemisphere plants. So I'm very walking, cool. and I'm looking at these plants, and I hear like this embodied resonance of of the fig gourds you know and and gourds are used as musical instruments that way i can just i can hear them on the branch right and i've yeah i've got the sun in my eyes and i've got a, a coat over my shoulder and i say aloud to myself in the dream i don't know where this is but it's not montana <laughs> I have had very similar dreams to that. I cannot remember. Well, yes, I can. Um, a good example is revisiting my grandmother's house or my aunt's house and conceptualizing of the space that I'm in as grandma's house or my aunt's house, but it being, you know, a sort of a Baroque dining hall or, or, or the woods, I don't know if you've ever had that experience yes. where you've, con- you've conceived of, of that you're in a house, but you're very clearly at the beach or in the forest or something like that. But it's interesting that in this particular dream, you had a, we're not in Kansas anymore, but we're not in Montana. 
right? Yeah. This is, this is definitely not Montana. Um, I love when mundane human observation makes its way into fantastical dreams because it's such a beavis and butthead moment yeah it's kind of a yeah no yeah no shit <laughs> yeah yeah it, but, it's just but it's funny because in the dream you're like wait a minute hang on a tick yeah this is not montana you know you can you can pull the wool over my eyes in many ways you know in the dream or not but i i can look around at these plants and go no 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 this whole thing just does not no. now there's there ain't nowhere in montana that, that this fits in uh, yeah, but that's, that's hilarious. I think that's an interesting way to wrap up the, the, the disembodiment crisis because it really does begin with the, the experience of dreams and dreaming and then the sharing of that within a group of people. And what did we do about that strange state of mind? Because it is both uh, obviously disembodied in one sense and heavily, completely, utterly embodied in another, you know? And that really, that remains uh, part of the, the mystery.